I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Callum here with a quick message from our wonderful, wonderful sponsor. Your home away from home is waiting for you at each of the resident hotels in London and Liverpool. You can enjoy excellent rooms in exceptional locations with heartfelt hospitality. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, thoughtfully chosen destinations within thriving cities. The Resident offers relaxed enclaves from which you can venture out to experience the city your way with The Resident's insider knowledge. Speaking of insider knowledge, Whitehall Sources starts now. living crisis that we're now living through were the position when I was just picking up my A-level results, then I don't think I would have been able to afford to go to university. There's no getting away from the fact that in the intervening years, the last two or three years, huge damage has been done to our economy and we therefore cannot make funding commitments that we can't, um, you know, costs that we can't show where the funding is coming from. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. We're recording on Wednesday the 23rd of August. Thank you for finding us. Over the course of this episode then, we'll bring you right up to date with all the political insight and analysis you could possibly need. And who better to provide that than Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning to you, Kevin. You, how, how, you've got a different backdrop today. Um, you're on the, you've been on the move. Yeah, I'm actually in London in the office. Every couple of weeks I like to come in and remind myself that I still am in the land of the living. Um, I find it you know, good not to get too much in my own head at home um, on the old chemo journey, so it's good to be in. I'm enjoying it. Well, you're doing great. You're doing absolutely great, and we love having you on the pod, as you know. Uh, so thank you for being here. Uh, right, thanks for listening. Thanks for following the podcast. Thank you for subscribing as well. well we're, we're kind of, we're nearly, nearly back in parliamentary session. What have we got, a couple of weeks to go before the MPs are back and things kick off? I was thinking, I saw a tweet from Christopher Hope, who used to be at um, The Telegraph, but has recently just moved to GB News. 
um, saying that this feels like the quietest recess in many, many years, basically, which I think is probably about right. It's Yeah, it's back to what you would call a kind of normal silly season, is what we used to call it in uh, Journoland. Um, you know, if you want to land a story that isn't the strongest story in the world, wait for silly season and put it <laughs> in there, because it, it goes pretty thin pickings for journos in August normally. And we've had such a high-octane, uh, you know, political scene since, you know, since the referendum uh, that we've just got used to just, you know, an avalanche of news coming at us 24-7, you know, 52 weeks of the year. And it's actually quite curious, you know, we're down to... I had to laugh the other day because the media were reduced to arguing about whether Rishi Sunak's uh, praise of the lionesses saying they left nothing out there was was the correct <laughs> political analogy or not um, in Rishi Sunak's defence. Uh, whatever else you can say about Rishi Sunak, you cannot accuse him of not being authentic in his uh, love of football. He's a lifelong Southampton supporter and was even there for that Letizia goal, uh, whatever that means, because I am not no, a Southampton yeah, fan. Yeah, same. Um, but he is a legit football fan, and uh, I am told, because of this weird, uh, concocted, tournament, you know, storm in a teacup, silly season story, <laughs> that leaving nothing out there is perfectly adequate as a... Uh, political phrase, uh, football phrase. Yeah, leaving it all out there is the other side of it, and whether that was the correct terminology. But it seems that both are perhaps fine, actually. <laughs> Slash, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but this is it. But this is what you would call a classic silly season story because it's like literally, you know, we're row- we're rowing about the semantics of one word. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and trying to you know conflate that with an issue about political, you know inauthentic politicians when everybody knows that Rishi Sunak is very much a you know lifelong Southampton fan and actually does know what he's talking about when it yeah. comes to football funny. Uh, so I, the whole thing made me smile yeah well <laughs> there's something nice about it yeah by the time you go back the way and there's referendums and there's Brexit controversies there's independence referendum in 2014 if we go all the way that far back there's general election kind of fallouts and ramp-ups it's been a crazy few years. So yes, fairly quiet, silly season, fairly quiet recess. Um, but things will pick up again in a couple of weeks when Parliament is back. Uh, of course, there's still plenty to talk about. Uh, today we're going to discuss um, the reshuffle that seems to be delayed once again. And also the NHS and staff in the NHS. And staff, it was interesting actually, in the, in the aftermath of the Lucy Letby sentencing this week, this is the nurse who killed seven babies and attempted to kill six others and she's been given a whole life order, she will never be released from prison and there's been so many conversations in the aftermath about this because senior consultants senior medical staff raised concerns about her behaviour about her conduct, basically saying look there's something strange going on here, we need to look into this uh, and it seems that NHS managers really just ignored that and put reputation first. Uh, So that's something that's difficult to reconcile and that's where the conversation has got to and it's interesting, on on Times Radio last night, I was speaking to somebody from the British Medical Association and talking about these whistleblowers, which is the word that's often used, obviously, to describe those from within an organisation who go on to report about uh, their concerns or, or, or 
or, or uh, report their concerns to senior managers. And actually, this the chair of the British Medical Association Council said, they're not whistleblowers, they were doing their job. And I thought that that was actually something really striking. Um, so we're going to consider that before the end of the podcast episode as well. Uh, so thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Uh, we want to pick up actually just where we left off on last week's pod. Um, we did a lot of discussion about A-level results. And of course, GCSE results are on the way this week. Um, but we have this email from Stephen, which I think is is just worth reflecting. So Stephen, thank you for your email. Uh, and here it is. Stephen says, we live in the northwest of England. My daughter worked very hard indeed for her A-levels and ended up having to see a therapist to deal with the stress levels that she had to put up with. She was predicted straight A's and her first choice was York to do politics. Her second choice was Cardiff, again to do politics, who offered an A and two B's. She got three B's. She wept when she found out. Cardiff had accepted her anyway, but that's not the point. She worked as hard as anyone in Northern Ireland or Scotland or Wales and the south of England too, where the downgrading to pre-pandemic levels does not seem to have been as strictly applied, possibly because marking boards are aware that people have more money there and may be able to afford uh, legal action. Everyone in my daughter's year that she knows has been marked down, not just their exam papers either, their coursework too. My daughter had a 34 for her history coursework after it had been marked by the local school's marking circuit. It's now come back as a 27 a friend of my daughter's was headed for Cambridge. See, she was the exceptional girl in the class, focused, hardworking, didn't mess about. She's not going to Cambridge now. A family friend has an autistic son. He had to put down one choice well within, he had put down one choice, excuse me, well within his range of achievement, but his grades were lower than expected. But he didn't want to have to face going through clearing, so now he's not going to university. A wrong has been done to my child and the other children in our part of the country. None of the local Tory MPs are speaking up. Ours has had nothing to say, as always. Lee Anderson, such a big man when it comes to victimising migrants, is surprisingly quiet on this. We have the education secretary saying, oh, no one really cares and it doesn't matter. It's so insulting. You talk about there being so many people getting their first choices, but not where I live. Maybe elsewhere in the country, but not here. My daughter will always have got three B's at A-level, and the context of the marking downgrading will be forgotten. My anger is off the scale, says Stephen. Um, first of all, Stephen, thank you for getting in touch and sharing your experience and your family's experience, your daughter's experience. And Kirsty, that is, that is a real-life example behind the statistics of last week, I suppose, that highlights the real crunch in this so-called pandemic or post-pandemic normalising of A-level grades. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I, you know, I can obviously feel the anger and the sense of injustice. I completely uh, understand and empathise with it. If I had seen uh, how hard my child had worked, you know, how much time they'd put into it, I, you know, one of the things I've never really understood is that we pile all the kind of life pressures onto teenagers and say to them, you know, your GCSEs, your A-levels will determine your, you know, will be one of the greatest factors in determining what happens in your life. You know, these are kids, you know, and we pile so much pressure on them and they work so hard uh, to get the results that, you know, that people tell them that they need. Um, and it's, you know, there is no getting away from it. It's bitterly disappointing, you know, it's bitterly disappointing for her, 
for her family. There's a sense of, you know, you get a real sense of injustice there. You know, we were talking last week about actually the regional disparities in this uh, are quite acute. Um, and again, it's one of those things that, you know, if I was, you know, in what you know, the Conservative government used to call a levelling up area, it's just to throw another one in the barbie of like, you know, what actually is levelling up for if it's not for, you know, creating a more level playing field, not a less level playing field. Mm. Um, and I just, I mean, I can only say I'm, you know, I'm very sorry. I've spoken to other parents who, um, you know, have had similar. Uh, kind of similar experiences last week you know a friend of mine you know her son went to pick his results up at school and he said there were far more tears than there were you know people you know um, people celebrating and actually that's the reality of the statistics isn't it it's not oh well you know it's you know it's not as bad as we thought or blah 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 it's young people who have worked incredibly hard who are in tears because you know, it doesn't feel fair to them. And by the way, it doesn't feel fair to them because it's not. Yeah. You know, you can't have one year, you know, you account for uh, the mass disruption of a pandemic and the next year you just go, right, boom, it's got to stop somewhere. This is our cutoff year. You know, these kids went through the same level of disruption. Yeah. You know, they worked equally hard, but they're not getting the same results. And there is no getting around from that. That is not fair. Um, and I, uh, you know, I thank Stephen for the letter. You know, it's part of his a great, great city. You know, I know his daughter will, you know, will go on to do great things. But you know, right now, that's you know easy for me to say because I'm not sitting there thinking, you know, this isn't right. Um, and the only thing I can say to Stephen and his daughter is they're right. It's not right. Mm. Um, but she will move on from this, you know, and she will have. A fantastic time in Cardiff, and she will, you know, she will go on to great things. I have no doubt, um, yeah. and I wish her uh, all the very best in that. But yes, I, you know, this is the reality of it. Yeah. It's really, really heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, and I've got skin in the game this week as well because my son gets his GCSE results this week. You know, and you know, I'm acutely aware of the disruption that was caused by it. And it doesn't feel fair to me either that, you know, this is the year where we just go, right, let's pull a, you know, let's put a guillotine down on this now and not mm. smooth it out. Mm. Other, you know, devolved areas have shown that you can smooth it out a bit still, and I think that's what should have happened, but um, it hasn't. And the consequence of this is, you know, hard-working kids in tears. Yeah. Stephen, thank you for your email. Uh, we're always very grateful for you getting in touch on anything that we're talking about or if you've got questions or concerns or things you want us to talk about, anything like that at all. But thank you for sharing your experience. Really, really do appreciate that. Just as a side note to all of that as well, this week is kind of education week, apparently, um, although the government seems to be talking that down somewhat. Um, although there have been announcements this week, um, there's 15 free schools have been announced in England this week. Uh, seven special schools going to be built as well as another announcement. Um, Children's Minister Claire Coutinho has been out and about through the week this week. The Education Secretary has been out and about this week discussing education. Of course, it's GCSE results as well coming. So although it's kind of it's kind of education week, but not education week, Kirsty, it seems. <laughs> yeah, I think they finally were, you know, woken up to the idea that announcing what your grid week is just a bit weird. <laughs> it's um... a bit weird. <laughs> You know, because it just, you know, 
you don't go, oh, look, here's the man behind the, you know, the curtain. And, uh, and to sort of say, this week is going to be blah, blah week um, because it's at the top of our grid. I, 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 you know, I think I said at the time, you know, when it first started, it was always a curious kind of comm strategy um, because it just opens you up to a fair amount of ridicule. But unfortunately, once you've, once you've said <laughs> that, you know, every Oof. week is plotted out like this, you know, there's going to be two or three more weeks where, you know, journalists have great fun going, clearly this week is... School's week, but it's not school's week. Um, uh, uh, and it's, uh, I mean, look, it's, you know, in shooting yourself in the foot goes, it's a minor injury, but um, yeah. uh, it clearly is school's week, and yet it's not. Um, <laughs> it's all very existential in number 10 at the moment, I don't uh, so 12 days to go until Parliament kicks off properly, uh, something which we're looking forward to. Uh, just want to mention at this point, Keir Starmer's week as well, in amongst all of this. Um, he was talking about education, uh, but particularly his own sort of experience of education. Uh, he basically said that he wouldn't be able to go if he was applying a, to be a student today um, in the middle of the cost of living crisis. Uh, that he would not be able to afford um, going to university. It would be out of reach for him if he was applying today. He said, we need to make change. We need to change that. We will come up with a fairer package for students, uh, which helps them with the money they have to outlay. But he didn't give any details. He said, that's work in progress. It will be a fairer system, but on a wider package. How do we get our energy bills down? How do we get our food bills down? How do we ensure our economy is actually booming and people feel like they've got money in their pocket again? So from that, that's kind of a broad approach from him that seems to just be looking to sweep up students in a in a better economic picture for everyone. I wonder if students actually, traditionally quite Labour supporting, would be looking for something a bit more specific from the Labour leader come the next general election. Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, that was just the point I was going to make. You know, I think... As we go into autumn, we're going to go into, you know, what feels more and more like election territory. And by and large, uh, you know, if I was going to advise the Labour government, you know, the, the potential Labour government, I would say, look, you know, you just need to go into attack, attack, attack on Conservatives' delivery. You don't need to spell out a huge amount of policy platform. It is actively unhelpful. But on this, I think that is one of the things I would make an exception to. You know, you've, you know, the Labour Party has quote unquote moved away uh, from its promise. Everybody moved away from their promise to abolish uh, tuition fees, uh, which are now an extraordinary nine thousand two hundred and fifty pounds a year. But I think if you're going to flag up the fact that you know this is a huge area that the Labour government is uh, is working on. Um, and accepting that it is a you know a genuine issue and a barrier to uh, some people re- realizing their full potential, uh, then I think I'd kind of want to see the whites of your policy eyes on this one before uh, I made this the determining factor in whether I voted for you or not. The system as it currently stands is pretty broken, um, and you know this is an extraordinary debt to saddle someone for life with when. You know, for the vast majority of jobs, there is no graduate pay premium anymore. Um, and, you know, he's wrong in the sense that, you know, everybody in theory can afford to go to university because the debt is backloaded. Uh, so it doesn't provide a kind of upfront barrier. But, you know, depending on the sort of job I wanted to do, would I want to go to, to get a degree now that leave me saddled with that level of debt for 20, 30 years? You know, I I don't I don't think I would. You know, I was speaking last week mm. about, you know, my son has taken an alternative route, um, 
you know, and I think that's you know that's the right calculation for some. You know, it's not you know if you're going into a kind of mid-level you know white-collar job, uh, you know, there is no there is no pay premium anymore for it. So, um, you know, like I say, we'll wait and see on that. And I, you know, it's not technically true to say he wouldn't be able to afford it. He would be able to afford it, but would he choose to do it and saddle himself with that debt is another mm. question. Entirely. And the debt, yeah, exactly. The numbers are quite large. So on average, this is from BBC News, including tuition fees and accommodation, it costs £49,887 to study in England, a little over £45,400 in Wales, £32,000 in Northern Ireland, and just under £28,000 in Scotland. But of course, tuition fees do vary in different nations of the UK. Uh, And of course, you get different uh, exemptions, bursaries, grants, etc. On the government's part of this, the Education Secretary Gillian Keegan said uh, that Sir Keir does not need to worry. She says, I've been working on degree apprenticeship routes for lots and lots of different occupations, and one of those now includes a lawyer is what Gillian Keegan had to say. Uh, But she did make the point that there's a hardship fund uh, given out to universities, so if anybody feels that they're being held back, then that option is there. So there are options, but it is just interesting to kind of consider the politicisation, twas ever thus, I suppose, but of university education and the cost of it, particularly at the moment when costs of everything are remarkably expensive. Um, I suppose there's a cost-benefit analysis to do as to whether going to uni is actually worth your time or not. Um, is the is the point, and there are a whole range of other options, and that's the thing. I, I think back to to my school experience, and I feel like there was quite a general openness to not going to uni. There was quite a number of us from my class that did, but similarly, there were others who left school before the official end of school to take up apprenticeships and to pursue other lines of of work, and lots of them are doing really really well. And I just think this sort of this consideration that not going to uni equals failure is just completely wrong and, and actually just completely old-fashioned. It's not the right thing for everyone and, indeed, for every career route. And I think that is the point that just we need to keep keep reiterating. Yeah, and, it, you know, this is the trouble with politics is a pendulum swing too often, right? So yeah. I think under Thatcher, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one in seven people went to get a degree at university, which wasn't enough. Uh, New Labour randomly plucked kind of 50%, which was too many, I I, I suspect, because it devalues the proposition. Um, And, you know, look, degree apprenticeships are one route, and they're a good route, actually, but, you know, I I wonder how limited they are in, you know, how many are actually available. Um, but actually, you know, like I said before, I'm sure I've banged on ad nauseum about David Goodhart, but, you know, we are in a recalibration of, uh, you know, what matters in our society and where we should be uh, valuing people in terms of both our respect for the professions that they do, but more acutely the pay that they receive. You know, and we've got a demographic time bomb, which means that caring professions are about to become infinitely more important, and rightly so, and long overdue. Uh, but also, you know, artisanal work, uh, you know, skin, skilled engineering stuff you do, you know, that you literally make with your hands. You know, none of this is requiring of sitting there and getting a, you know, geography degree. Um, so, you know, I think, and because my generation 
puts you know what was the what was the kind of you know the the education du jour of you know of of my era you know you naturally kind of try you know put that down to your kids and say oh well, you must get a degree and actually that's just not true anymore I just don't think that you know it's horses for courses right um, and we're about to enter a radically shifting a much more diverse workforce where people that you know work with their hands or their you know heart as they like in that kind of head hand heart title of the David Goodhart book you know are going to become much more important to society and so you know trade professions apprenticeships T levels uh, apprenticeship degrees they're all good options you know Uh, I mean my degree is utterly pointless (laughs) what's your your degree oh do you know what I just like uh, talk about self-indulgent it was in um, uh, humanities um (laughs) Uh, it was. I majored in in English literature. My um, just to show you the depths of my pretension when I was at university. My uh, dissertation was called "The Development of the Other and the Understanding of the Self" in Fyodor Dostoevsky's work. Oh my um, word! Uh, and I can remember like the night before it was due in, my parents running page after page of it round to. Maureen Preston's house because she had a laptop or she had a computer and we didn't trying to type it out and because it was all full of Russian names and kept on coming back I'm like no you don't spell Friedrich Aloff like that <laughs> running oh it back round again uh, I don't think I ever really thanked Maureen Preston so thank you Maureen Preston because I you know I That's think I was quite weird. ungrateful and stressed at the time but um, she did me a huge solid on that one and I got a first for it but uh, well there you are uh, you know but then I got a very mediocre two on degree. Who cares, right? It's not, mm. um, you know. But but it's yeah. I mean, have I ever been able to go? Thank God I read the Brothers Karamazov. You know, no. <laughs> <laughs> the world of no. Um, and once I moved away from being twenty-one and achingly pretentious, uh, it became completely irrelevant. You know. Um, I, I, I didn't even get the sort of you know benefit of being pretentious at parties because I just thought, God, that's like embarrassing and cringe. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. I love it. Uh, one of my minor subjects was philosophy, and we spent a whole uh, term discussing the cheeriness of a chair. Um, oh my word! So yeah, a very indulgent was- and utterly pointless degree. There was famous um, philosophy degree folklore that did the rounds in my day. I don't know if it did in yours. Where an essay um, uh, topic for a philosophy exam was apparently uh, something along the lines of, you know, tell us about the chair on which you're sitting. And somebody wrote it as their essay, what chair? And that was all they wrote. And apparently they passed with flying colours. But I don't know if that's just a, a, a sort of made up story about philosophy degrees. My favourite response ever from a kid to an essay question was someone, a friend of mine's a teacher, and they had an essay question which was, uh, tell us about Nelson Mandela, <laughs> which the student just wrote, he did. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> Comprehensive. <laughs> well, short and snappy. Yeah, it's good. Um, but yeah I, I, I doubt they got the full marks for that one. He did. <laughs> Well, here we are. There's not, I mean, it's factually accurate. What else can you say? Uh, so there we are. Right, good. Still to come then on the podcast, we're going to discuss Rishi Sunak's reshuffle, the much-advertised reshuffle, which has been hanging in the air around Whitehall 
for, well, where are we? Towards the end of August? Probably about two months at this point. Uh, but it seems like it may have been shoved even further down the track. Uh, so we'll get to Rishi Sunak's reshuffle. And also we're going to consider the NHS and accountability in the NHS as well. Uh, since the conviction and sentencing of Lucy Letby for murdering babies uh, at the hospital at which she worked. Uh, stay with us on Whitehall Sources. There's lots still to come. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Oh, hello. Well, you thought you'd got rid of me, didn't you? Well, here I am in the break as well. You are welcome. Here at Whitehall Sources, we are always enthusiastic about rigorous journalism. So we have been tapping up our very special sources to find out more about The Resident, which says it has excellent rooms in exceptional locations, providing heartfelt hospitality. I'm pleased to say their story checks out, actually. Here's one of our sources, Bossman56, who says, Just spent three days at the resident Covent Garden. Room was excellent, so were the staff. The room and the hotel, clean and tidy. Staff were friendly and very efficient. We'll be going back soon. And in the interest of double sourcing, it's just what we have to do as rigorous journalists. How about this from Gufton, which I assume must be a codename. The best hotel I've stayed at in London. The customer service was unsurpassed from the moment I walked in the door. It actually all makes us very proud to be supported by The Resident on Whitehall Sources. And you can join The Resident online. Go to residenthotels.com. And if you all do that, they'll actually just be very pleased with us. So go to residenthotels.com. Thank you. Whitehall Sources, thanks for being with us. It's Kirsty and Callum discussing all of the politics you could possibly need to know uh, and analysing it, putting it in its context with Kirsty, who has literally, literally lived it and breathed it, walked the halls of Downing Street indeed, running the country, <laughs> running the country, some might say. Uh, we, want, we want to go on to talk... I don't, I don't think we could say I was literally running the country, to be fair. <laughs> uh, we're going to go on now. I was, I was running the country adjacent. <laughs> Yeah, nice. I love that. Uh, we're going to talk about Rishi Sunak's reshuffle shortly because um, it seems like it's not happening. So stay with us for the segment called It's Not Happening, but we'll talk about it anyway. Uh, but before that, we want to talk about the NHS, the state of the NHS and concerns around the NHS after the sentencing of uh, the nurse, Lucy Letby, um, who killed seven babies and attempted to kill six others who were in her care. 
in inverted commas, in a neonatal unit in uh, in hospital. Um, Kirsty, just but I mean, it's a really heavy story to get into the details of, and we've been reporting it all week on Times Radio, and I have to say it doesn't get any less grim when you get into the detail of it. But there have been questions now about the accountability of NHS managers and how those that raise concerns, and I'll make that point again, um, we were advised last night on air by the British Medical Association that these consultants who raise concerns, they were not whistleblowers, they were doing their job because their job is to care for patients and they thought that the care being provided was falling below the standard which it should sit at and so they raised their concerns to management and attention is now turned to those managers who were in that hospital at that time uh, as to why this wasn't dealt with at the time. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just want to say my heart goes out to all the families affected in this. Um, I cannot begin to imagine. Uh, I've struggled to read it. Um, Some of it is so... Uh, appalling that I've I've actually had to. It's very rare that I can't read through something. I'm made of pretty stern stuff, uh, but this has been a real struggle to read some of the detail of it. So uh, appalling, um, you know. And there are two, you know, there are two elements to this here. One is the you know atrocious uh, crimes uh, that were committed and for which, rightly, she will never see. Uh, you know, at the outside of a prison again. Um, but the other is just uh, an unbelievable, unimaginable, jaw-dropping failure of management here to heed people's concerns, you know, and treat them with the seriousness with which they were deserved. And not only... And the reality is, and you know, and let's not lose sight of this fact, some of these babies would still be alive... This is the truth. Mm. If those concerns had been taken seriously by management, that is the reality of that, you know. And the doctors, the consultants that raised the concerns, my heart goes out to them too because they were put through the ringer. You know, they were made to feel that they had done something wrong. At one point, they were, you know, asked to have mediated sessions with this woman and sit down and apologise for bullying her. I mean, it is just breathtaking. So, you know, and they, you know, I'm not saying that I, you know, I think they should, but, you know, they have some grief and some guilt too, and that, you know, could we have done more? Should we have done more? You know, they couldn't have done more. You know, they used all the right avenues and they pressed again and again, you know, under threat of their own jobs. You know, they pressed Mm. because they knew that this was deeply wrong. So, you know, there is, a, there is a, a perfectly... There's two things going on here. So, one, the families want uh, a statutory inquiry because they want those who fail to take the right decisions to be held to account, to be called uh, to an inquiry and be held to account, and rightly so, um, I think. And we've seen the government shift away from, you know, its earlier position of, oh, well, you know, a statutory inquiry is very clunky and we need to get to the you know, bottom of this quickly, etc. Uh, to actually, I think, when Gillian Keegan was out and broadcast around, she shifted away from that and they seemed to be moving towards uh, an inquiry. Um, so I think that is the right call to make. Uh, but I also think there's a wider systemic problem that needs to be addressed. And this isn't the first time 
you know, we've had issues like this. And that is about, you know, uh, who polices the managers of an NHS trust. Yeah. You know, there are, you know, there is a register for doctors, there is a reg- register for, you know, for, for care. And, you know, if you get complaints and you are found to have, you know, a breach, you'll be struck off the register. But, you know, who strikes off managers? They move from trust to trust to trust. Um, and, you know, quite a few of people involved in this have now retired. Um, and, you know, if I was one of the family, I would be looking for justice, sure, uh, from, you know, from the managers that made such catastrophic decisions. Um, uh, and also I would be looking for genuine change. And there are a couple of things here that can be done quite quickly. Um, you know, and we have got King's Speech coming up. Uh, and I think one of the things I would want to be seeing from that is some, uh, you know, some work towards that. The other thing that this has thrown up is the uh, unbelievably nominal amounts of money that people are paid uh, in terms of bereavement for a child. Um, mm. I mean, it's you know on a par with you know having a knee injury. If your child has been um, uh, you know injured or made disabled through medical negligence, there is obviously you know a compensation package that reflects the levels of care and lost earnings but bereavement compensation is just you know appallingly low and I know I'm going to make the obvious point that no amount of compensation would yeah. ever be enough uh, but I think you know there is a world where you know I would like to see in the King's speech uh, you know a one clause bill that addresses this you know, it could be got through. There's there's secondary leg- There's two types of secondary legislation. You know, one is a positive and one of is a negative SI. And the difference is, you know, Parliament votes and debates on one and doesn't on the other. Now I'm, you know, I'm not a legislative expert. I don't know whether you could do it in that sense or whether it would require primary legislation. But I've seen, um, uh, you know, I have seen secondary legislation that is positive in other words it needs to be debated and voted on in the house go through in a day um Mm. uh, when there is a when there is a cross-party parliamentary will um and if ever there was a cross-party parliamentary will it must surely be around this uh and i think if that doesn't happen every session there is a um there is a ballot of mps and it's literally a kind of lottery and you know whoever comes to the top of that lottery, you know it's uh, it's another one I would like to pitch in for you know for for a private members bill, which again you know I find it inconceivable that that wouldn't receive uh, cross party support and become law. Um, but you know there is, as I say, a much wider systemic problem around management, and when that's called to task, there is no external body. When your managers fail to heed your justifiable concerns, there is no external body you can go to. And when you're proved right and your managers are proved so catastrophically wrong, you know, at the moment, you know, uh, there is there is very little in terms of consequences and both of these things have to change. Yeah. I was quite taken by something um, that Tim Montgomery, who is the founder of Conservative Home, said on Times Radio last night when we were kind of discussing the accountability point. 
And one of the things he said was, are we attempting to, or questioned, he questioned, are we attempting to replace moral standards and personal responsibility with regulation? Um, you know, making the point that exactly that, who sort of polices the managers and actually this behavior was just unacceptable. And then, so just get rid of them, just fire them. You know, this was behavior that was fell far below the moral standards that we are right to expect. And so it's not necessarily about regulating more. It's about just upholding that moral standard. I thought that was quite thought-provoking um, when he said that last night. But, I mean, hear, hear to all that you said as well, Kirsty. Yeah, and look, it is thought-provoking. But, you know, the, the thing that I find most... Well, one of the many things I find most alarming about this story is that, you know, I think the managers thought they were upholding a moral standard. I think they'd got it into their head that those were a bunch of male doctors that were, you know, bullying this poor, defenceless, you know, nurse. And that was the moral code that they fixated on. Um, Rather than, you know, it's a weird one. As I get older in life, when someone says something that feels to be unlikely or unimaginable or untrue, you know, there's a natural instinct to go, oh, you know, that's that's difficult. I don't, you know, but actually, you should flip it and go, what if they're true? What if they're right? You know, what if this mm. terrible, unimaginable thing is actually right? You know, and actually, I think they flipped too quickly into, um, you know, they're bullying this poor girl. So actually, regulation is there to remove uh, individual moral compasses and provide a you know, a minimum kind of standard backdrop and backstop, good old backstop, uh, (laughs) when people's, you know, values are, you know, driven by, you know, uh, driven by other things, you know. So, Mm. you know, this is why regulation is there. And, you know, I mean, look, (laughs) there's plenty wrong with our regulatory system in in many areas and industries and, um, you know, in some of our public services, but... uh, you know, you need to start with a basic regulatory system. Otherwise, people yeah. who um, raise alarms and get shot down have nowhere else to go. And, you know, that is what has happened here. And the consequences for that are devastating. Um, and, you know, uh, we can all remember Midstaffs, which was another terrible care scandal, you know, Mm. And every time we have one of these, we're told, you know, never again. And it just, you know, and yet we here we are a decade later with something so, you know, uh, so enormous and so terrible that, you know, this, you know, surely this time, this must galvanise action. Yeah, and so say all of us. Uh, right, uh, we've got a few minutes left on the pod, so let's talk about the reshuffle. Uh, that still hasn't happened and doesn't look like it's going to happen for some time to come. Uh, This reporting from Stephen Swinford in The Times on Wednesday morning. Rishi Sunak is expected to delay a full cabinet reshuffle until the winter after deciding to make limited changes to his top team before Parliament's return next month. Uh, He's going to carry out a limited reshuffle. He'll replace Ben Wallace, who's announced he's standing down as Defence Secretary. We've known that for a little while, so he's going to replace him. Uh, Other things in this reporting, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, is understood to be safe, but several other senior cabinet ministers are vulnerable in what's expected to be quite a far-reaching reshuffle. We think it's going to be after Conservative Party conference. That's at the beginning of October and most likely after the King's speech in November. 
Uh, Sunak is expected, and here are the magic political words that you hear every so often, Sunak is expected to use Conservative Party conference to, in effect, reset his premiership as he begins to articulate his vision for the future. Uh, So there is quite a battle to try and replace Ben Wallace as Defence Secretary, it would seem. But the reshuffle... Well, it might be a Christmas present for us all, Kirsty. I think is the bottom line here. Merry Christmas. Here's a reshuffle. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things to say about this. One, by and large, readers should always take reshuffle stories <laughs> with a pinch of salt. I've written plenty in my time. However, some journalists are, you know, much more worth paying attention to because they have, you know, very good connectivity. And Steve Swinford is definitely one of them. Uh, so I would uh, hazard a guess that this has been uh, carefully and well briefed by somebody at number 10 and therefore I would pay attention to this mm. and think that for now it is true. That's not to say that positions won't uh, won't change. We used to, you know, we used to joke about everything is true until it's not, right? <laughs> but I think this is the current thinking. And I think there's a, there's a couple of reasons for this which obviously aren't in the briefing. Um, I think one... Obviously, you know, we've had a kind of hiatus over the summer, but, you know, Rishi Sunak has a considerable party management problem on his hands. We've already seen this week that borrowing is £11.3 billion uh, less than the OBR had predicted. Uh, And this has immediately created this kind of uh, jump up from the Conservative right saying, right, OK, now we're going to afford tax cuts, you know. And in the run-up to the autumn statement, that kind of tax cut battle, which have put on the back burner um, in the in the summer, will very much be back on the agenda, particularly uh, now they think they've got £11 billion to play with. Uh, although, obviously, Jeremy Hunt has said, uh, no, we, we carry on squeezing inflation, that is the... That is the plan and that is the priority. So I think there's that. And then obviously we saw a briefing off the back of the by-elections that we were going to see a you know, more punchy, muscular, you know, uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, which again is, you know, is in, obviously designed to appeal to, um, you know, a certain section of voters, but also to, to appease party and throw some red meat at them. And so, you know, if you have a reshuffle before your um, uh, before your party conference, you lose two things. One, you lose some leverage on patronage, um, and the fact that some people, you know, will pull their punches if they think, you know, going for the prime minister might affect their chances of a promotion. Uh, and also, if you're trying to reset, if you reset at the conference and it falls a bit flat you have a second chance to reset with a reshuffle. But you've lost that if you do it in advance. So I think it's a couple of things here. I think one, it's to extend out the period by which Downing Street has some leverage over some within the party, although, like I say, you know, they are kind of pretty much ferrets in a sack mode now for for a substantial rump of them. But also it gives you that second opportunity to have another reset if your October conference doesn't quite... Uh, fire on the cylinders that it should. 
Reshuffle ahoy. Uh, we look forward to the reshuffle. Um, it's worth saying there are lots of people kind of mentioned in this reporting as well as to who might be in line for promotion. Uh, Claire Coutinho, uh, Laura Trott, Laura Ferris potentially. Uh, Michael Gove has been linked to the health role. Uh, in some of this. Steve Barkley, the, the health secretary, could be vulnerable. Therese Coffey, the environment secretary, could be vulnerable as well. Um, so, you know, there could be some big names getting rotated around, reshuffled around whenever it does happen. Um, so it could be a real statement of intent come come Christmas time, um, I suppose. But the defence secretary job, that seems to be the one that will be uh, filled more uh, more imminently than the rest, basically, to replace Ben Wallace. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on the uh, on reshuffle news. Um, good. I think that just about does it for us for today then, Kirsty. Uh, how's the rest of your day looking today? That it does. <laughs> uh, I am uh, going out for uh, a meeting with someone who is tipped in the reshuffle. So oh. I'm not going to tell you who. Uh, uh, so I'm going out for that. Um, I have a couple of internal meetings. I'm meeting a SPAD. Uh, to discuss sustainability issues. Lovely. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then I'm hoping for uh, a nice curry in Hackney somewhere. Oh, very nice. Oh, good. That's a... Thai curry oh, that's a great day out. That's fab. Uh, so, yeah, Kirsty, Kirsty's working her Whitehall sources by the sound of it, is what she's about to do next. That's uh, Which is very, very nice indeed. Uh, good. Uh, right, well, we will uh, keep in touch. Uh, of course, we're here on the podcast every single week for you. We've only got 12 days to go until the new parliamentary term. Gosh, it does feel like we're ready for it, I think, at this point. Uh, so do stay with us over the next couple of weeks as we get stuck back into Westminster politics. Thanks for being here this week, and we will talk to you again soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.